And uh, wherever you're at right now, I just want to say that I hope uh, it's like a comforting place. Maybe that's what you need right now. Um, maybe it puts you in a place where you're able to hear a, like a challenging thing. Um, to be like convicted is a word we might use even. Like, I don't know, but like for the next few minutes, I hope with the awareness that we've just focused on for a little while, we can just sort of open up. And um, as a community, we, we believe these things about the, the presence of God's spirit when we gather, um, the way God can move in a community of people who open themselves up to that in the way that the scriptures can speak to us, um, not just some abstract or removed truth, but like a very personal way that they might speak to us. And so uh, if you want to go there with us sort of in your spirit, that's great. Or if all that feels a little spooky to you, that's okay too. And um, you can just sort of like engage it wherever you're at right now and we'll jump in together. Uh, we're in Genesis, which is where we've been for a while, I know. Um, you got scriptures uh, that were handed out to you in the program there when you walked in. Some of you just, you hope Genesis goes on forever and ever. I know, I'm with you. Um, I feel like we could go like another two or three years, uh, but we won't. We're actually, we're gonna get sort of end Genesis this week and next. Um, there's a sort of structural breaking point in the book. Maybe not a breaking point, but we're sort of in a, a place in the scriptures where the first 11 chapters or so are telling prelude and prologue and introduction, and then things turn a little bit uh, where we're going to look today, and that's really important. So, so far what we've done is like lots of introduction, like lots of introduction, right? So like chapter after chapter, this setting is being set in the story where we see the whole world is a temple, and where we see ourselves as bearers of God's image in that temple, like temple workers who cultivate and get to work making beautiful things out of the raw materials in this world. And we've been living there for a very long time. But the problem is, like, you can't keep a story going with just a couple of good ideas. Like, you need more than that to actually make a story keep moving forward. And this is a very big, dense story, right? My Bible's like 1,100 pages. Like, you need more than a couple of big ideas. You need desire. You need... Um, prophecy or expectation or a picture of where things might get if the story goes the way you hope it will. You, like, you need something pulling you forward. Like, you need an engine in a story to drive it somewhere, right? Um, every good story has one. In fact, I was listening to This American Life a little while ago, the, the really nerdy NPR show that I'm crazy about, and they were talking about how um, every Disney movie has a very formulaic desire song sung by the main character at the beginning of the movie. And when they started going through them, it blew my freaking mind, like in every Disney movie. Like, uh, here's a couple for those of us who maybe a little older than some in the room. Uh, the Little Mermaid, there's a desire song at the, little, at the beginning of The Little Mermaid. I wanna be where the people are, right? Don't look at me like that. You know what I'm talking about. And I will keep singing if I have to get you there with me, okay? Uh, what about The Lion King? Simba, what does he sing toward the very beginning of the movie? Oh, I just can't wait to be king, right? Every single movie starts with a desire song. It's super formulaic, but you know there's an engine that's going to drive that story. And there's going to be moments in the story where you're not sure if it's going to work out and if Simba's going to be king or if the little mermaid's going to get to be human and have the love that she wants. Every story has these, these desire mechanisms, these pictures of the future, these prophecies or expectations that are driving a story somewhere. You've got to figure out like, where's the story going? And we're actually about to get to the engine of the story. We're going to look at it tonight. And it's not just the engine for Genesis. Like, ask 
10 people who know the Bible really well, like better than me, and at least nine of them will tell you what we're about to look at, you could see it as the engine driving the whole story, the, the whole thing. Um, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a promise, it's an expectation, it's a picture of what the future might look like, and, and it's really important for the story of Scripture. So we're going to look at that together, and uh, this is sort of just picking up after the Tower of Babel, which is the thing that we did uh, last week, and this is in Genesis chapter 11, verse 27. We're looking for like the engine that's going to drive the whole story. Uh, chapter 11, verse 27. This is the account of Terah's family line. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran became the father of Lot. And while his father Terah was still alive, Haran died in Ur of the Chaldeans in the land of his birth. Abram and Nahor both married, and the name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah. She was the daughter of Haran, the father of both Milcah and Iscah. And now Sarai was childless because she was not able to conceive. And Terah took his son Abram, his grandson Lot, son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, the wife of his son Abram, and together they set out from Ur of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there, and Terah lived 205 years, and he died in Haran. Do you guys feel the engine? <laughs> no, good, because we didn't quite get there yet. Sorry, I know that was a bit tedious. We included that because we're going to come back to it in a second. Here's the engine, chapter 12, verse 1. Then the Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, from your people, and from your father's household to the land I will show you, and I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. And I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. That's the engine, and a lot of people who read this book and wrestle with it would say, it drives the whole story. It's the picture of a person or a people called out into uncomfortable places in the world to receive blessing, but more importantly, to become a conduit of blessing, a channel of blessing that keeps expanding in the world like driving the whole thing. And then you can read through the scriptures and you can feel the tension of this promise because there are days when you see it coming to fruition in the story and there's other moments when it feels just very far away from happening. Uh, blessing through a people to the world so that the world would be blessed. Now let's just poke around on this for a little bit and ask a few questions about it. First of all, like why did Abram get the blessing? It's interesting because just a few weeks ago we looked at Cain and Abel and we, we talked about that as a story of what you do when somebody else has the blessing. But now I want to ask, it, why, why does Abram, like why does he get plucked out for this raging promise? This is, like, this is not little talk here, right? Especially uh, at a time and place where a growing family, your offspring, is the closest sense you have of eternal life. I mean, this early in human consciousness, it doesn't even seem like they're really talking about eternal afterlife, heaven, that kind of stuff. We're, like, to know that your kids will pass on and that your family will grow, that's how you persist, right? To know that your name goes on through kids and grandkids. And to be promised this big family for blessing for the whole world, I mean, this is really big stuff. Why does Abram get that? Like, why does he get plucked out of this land and given that promise and called to be a part of this thing that God's doing? Well, um, it's interesting. Just like Cain and Abel, what we do with that question, I think it shows us a lot about ourselves, and, and what uh, interpreters have done with that question, we might, we might resonate with a little bit. There's uh, two places in the rabbinical commentary. If you, if you want to like, track this down, you can look at the Genesis Rabbah or another, um, 
another ancient text called the Book of Jubilees. These are a couple of places where stories are written around the story of Genesis to interpret it and make more sense of it. And in these other places, we see stories about Abram that are meant to explain why he's the lucky one. Like, why does he deserve to get plucked out and have all this blessing? One of the stories says that Abram was like the first monotheist. Well, actually, both these stories are saying that. Like, Abram is surrounded by idolatry, and his father is an idolater, and he has all these little idols. In fact, his father, like, manufactures idols for other people to come into the idol shop and buy an idol and take it home and bow down to it. And so in one of these stories, Abram challenges uh, the father to, to not do that with the idols anymore, but the father says he's going to keep at it. And so Abram sets fire to the building where all the idols are. In fact, his father goes in to rescue the idols and dies in the fire. It's a little, little morbid, but it's in there, right? There's another story which is funny. Like, I really like this story. Now, in this story... Abram is tending to his father's idol shop while his father is away. And while he's tending to the idol shop, a woman comes in and wants to give a gift of flour, like the grain, right? Like flour to, to offer to the idol so they can eat in case they're hungry. And so the lady leaves the flour there and then goes away. And then when nobody's looking, Abram takes a club and he smashes all the idols except for the biggest one and puts the club in the hand of the biggest idol. And the father comes back and says, what happened? And Abram says, well, they were hungry and they had a fight over who got the flour and the biggest one won. That's actually in the book of Jubilees. I love that. And of course, Abram's father says, don't be foolish. These are just little wooden statues that I made. And Abram says, then why do you worship them? Right? Very impressive. So these are the stories that are written about Abram around the story of Genesis. This is human beings try to make sense. Those are very virtuous stories. Abram sounds like the kind of guy that God should pluck out of his everyday existence and say, you, you get the blessing. You, you, you get the promise, man. You are the guy, right? It sounds like that. that. That's the kind of guy that should get that, right? But of course, that's nowhere in this text. It's nowhere here. I think that's more like what we do when we want to construct a world where we get to be good enough to get the blessing. Where we make sense of who's in and who's out based on virtue and performance and personal history, right? There is one peculiar thing that we know about Abram. In fact, it's basically the only thing we know about Abram that makes him stand out from his family tree. The one thing that we know about Abram, this is a guy who's being promised abundant offspring, Right? There's one thing that we read, and we went right past it in chapter 11, uh, verse uh, 30. Abram's wife Sarai was childless because she was not able to conceive. Now, I don't exactly know what to do with that, except the one thing we know about the guy that gets this promise from God is that his circumstances would tell him that promise is a million miles away. Right? In a time and place where there's a lot of maybe stigma attached to a woman being able to conceive or not, maybe even like moral status attached to her, her body working like that or not working like that, this is the one guy and his wife here in the story where like they don't have what it takes for this promise to show up. They aren't able to get it for themselves. And you could go like all through scripture again and again and again. And one thing it seems is that like God really, really likes to bless people who have no way of deserving it or grabbing it for themselves. That just seems to be part of the stories that God tells in the scripture. And again, this isn't just a story in the scripture. This is like the driving promise of scripture. Um, this is the, 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 the first patriarch of the people of Israel, uh, the people whose book this is, right? The story that's being told here. And it begins with a man and his wife who have no promise of this blessing in their circumstances, no promise of these riches in their life. 
And that's the one thing we really know about them. And, and God plucks Abram out and says, yeah, but I, I want to do this with you and for you and through you. We should also ask, um, uh, like, in what context did Abram get the blessing? Like, what, what, what's going on in Abram's life that he'd get the blessing? And it's interesting, because as we think about that question, remember, we just looked at Babel, and what was going on at Babel? Well, one of the things that we talked about was that human beings were called to fill the world, right? To go out and fill the world, to scatter, to go into risky and dangerous places and make something of the world. And at Babel, human beings decided, rather than scattering and making something of the world, we're going to gather and make something of ourselves, right? We're going to keep ourselves in the secure place. We're going to keep our tribal comfort all around us. And that seems to be at odds with the story that God is calling humanity to, right? So that's just before Genesis 12. And then we read in Genesis 12 that God says to Abram, I want you to leave your country, your people, and your father's household. He's called to scatter. He's called to leave behind all that security and go out there to wild and dangerous places to move as God leads him into risky things. And we've been talking about this for a little while now because it shows up again and again as we move through the scriptures that Perhaps we are called from time to time to leave behind whatever is safe or comfortable because out there somewhere beyond what is safe and comfortable is where God is waiting to meet us and bless us and call us and work with us and make us collaborative partners in the good things that he wants to do in the world. Now, I don't know what scattering looks like for you. It could, it could mean, it could be geographic. I don't know. Maybe, I think everybody should move to South Bend personally. But I don't know for you, like maybe, maybe, maybe there is a, a geographic, there's geographic security in your life. Maybe it's um, work. Maybe it's that like you sort of build a, a hedge of theological certainty around your life and it keeps some questions out. But in fact, on the other side of that hedge, there are some questions that might really be hard to wrestle with. But in fact, out there is where God is waiting to meet you in some of those mysteries and challenges. I mean, we, could, we could go on and on. I don't know what it looks like for each of us to, to walk in the way of faith that takes us to, to dangerous places where God wants to meet us and work on us and work with us. But here it is again in the story, right? Now, I know it's not easy. Like, it's not easy sometimes if you're out there in an unsafe place, if you're far away from the comforts of the world that you build around yourself to make yourself safe. Like, it can be hard out there. Um, but there is one practice I want to just pivot to for a second because it shows up frequently in the scriptures. Whenever you find God's people obeying God's calling and they're out there in the wilderness in the wild place, well, one thing that happens is they keep getting surprised by God coming through. They keep getting surprised by the divine encounters that are waiting for them out there. They almost never get to demand them when they want them, right? And yet, when they need them in unexpected moments, they keep being surprised by these divine encounters that are waiting for them in the wild and unexpected place out there, right? And every time they do that, in fact, it's, if we read just a little further in chapter 12 with Abram, we'd see this. Every time that happens, uh, these people, they have this instinct, this impulse that there's something that you should do when you're out there in a wild or dangerous or risky place, when you've left safety behind to follow God into the unknown, when you're out there and you encounter God somehow, there's something you should do you should build an altar. And again and again and again, God's people build altars when they find him out there in wild and risky and dangerous places. Um, one of Abram's offspring that will come about because of this promise, later in his family chain, one of them is out there in the wild on the run from something that he's actually ashamed of, 
And he wrestles with God through the night and wakes up in the morning and says, surely God was in this place and I didn't know. And he builds an altar there. And I wonder if it's, first of all, just to like impress more deeply upon ourselves what we've just experienced. Because sometimes those divine encounters, they're elusive, right? Like they come and they go. Some blessing, some gift, some unexpected thing, some circumstance that changes, some good word that comes to you. Maybe it's just an inner experience of God that came to you and you didn't see it coming. But like these things come and then they go, don't they? Like they, they quickly leave us behind. And if we're not careful, we wake up the next day and, and we've moved on to other distracting things and we haven't sort of gathered those blessings up and let them sink in very much, right? So they build altars. And I also wonder if the other gift of an altar is that somebody else walking along that same path might not have their eyes open, might have no expectation that God is about to show up or bless them or meet them or care for them or call them out or do anything else, but they see an altar that somebody else has built and maybe, just maybe it stirs them up and says, I wonder if God might be here for me too. Like, I wonder if in this dark or difficult place or walking this road in the wilderness, I wonder if God might be here for me too. Because here's an altar where apparently somebody had an unexpected counter with God. Maybe that still happens. So they build altars. And if you're in, a, in an Abram moment, like called out of some secure, safe, easy place, walking a road that is maybe exhilarating or terrifying or fresh or enlivening or whatever, I don't know, but you're walking that road and and some blessing, some meaning breaks in, some divine encounter, some good thing breaks in, like maybe we also need to learn how to build altars. Some way of naming, some way of externalizing, of saying out loud, of letting it press more deeply into ourselves, we have encountered the goodness of God, right? Uh, thinking about this as I was reading Genesis this week, I was thinking of how I've seen other people build altars. I thought about growing up in church. And um, sometimes in church, I don't know if you ever felt this way as a kid, sometimes at church, I, I, felt, I felt a little like, and I, mean, I was always in church, from my, like I was a baby. Dad was an elder, mom was like on the worship team. Like I was churched, very churched. And yet, like I'd be in church, and I'd watch sometimes like stuff going around around me with the adults, and I'd be like, that's weird, right? <laughs> like, I, wonder, I wonder what's happening right now. And like one thing I remember like in, in, these, um, in these small churches that I grew up in, these kind of sleepy country churches in rural places, I remember like we'd stand up and we'd sing a hymn like, Great is Thy Faithfulness. And the hymn was like not my jam because it was in three and I don't like odd meter in hymns. Like I just didn't really get it, you know. And, but I would look up and I would see maybe, in, uh, often there were older people in our church for whom the hymns were just very deeply meaningful. And I'd watch their, their body, their face sort of wear an emotional intensity as they sang, and sometimes they'd tear up a little bit and cry. And I don't know that I had the words for it then, but I think as I watched that, I realized some of these people, they're building an altar right now with their words, with their song. They're just, they're reflecting on the times in their life when that faithfulness has shown up, and they're singing, and they're building an altar, right? I have uh, this friend that I used to work with at the church I came from. He's a very, very thoughtful, intentional God, he lived a very practiced life of faith with, with his family. And they developed this practice with their young children, which was every time anything good broken, any kind of blessing, any kind of good thing, maybe something they'd prayed for, or maybe something they didn't expect at all, they would go to the store and they would buy, with, with their kids, they'd buy like a non-alcoholic sparkling grape juice, right? And then they bought a wine rack at home. And the first time one of those blessings came up, they bought the bottle, they put it in the bottom of the rack, and they had a special journal they bought, and they sat together as a family, and they wrote a little story of what that blessing was and what had happened. And then every time another blessing, and they would number the bottle and write the number next to the journal entry. 
Every time another blessing, they'd buy another bottle, write another entry until the rack was full. And then the next blessing that came after the rack was full, well, they, they, they wrote down the story of the good thing that had just happened with the new bottle they had bought, but to make room for the new bottle, then they went back to the first bottle in the rack and pulled it out and went back and read the first story together as a family about that good thing that had happened a long time ago, which part of me is like, okay, that's ridiculous. That is good, man. Like, that's very intentional, you know, really creative. But why not? Like, why not? Why not have practices of altar building in our lives? Because it is hard sometimes, especially if you are out in a wild or difficult or dangerous place. Whether you chose to go there in faith or life dragged you there, it can be hard out there. So why not build an altar from time to time when something good breaks in, right? I I think about um, our last night as a church family at the Brick, which we were gathering at on Wednesday nights through the winter, right? And a lot of you were there. And we just felt like this is just a night to say thank you as a community. Thank you that we get to be a community. Thank you for the season we had at the brick. Thank you that God is doing this thing in our midst. And so our last night, we were there in the circle like we usually sit at the brick. And um, and we just did an open floor. Anybody want to say anything about this season that we've been in as a church? Any good thing that's happened? And for like, I don't know, 10, 15, 20 minutes, there was just like wave after wave. People would speak all these different ways that we've experienced grace and peace, unexpected goodness as a community. And it was really powerful, like way better than any sermon I could preach, right? Like just to, just to build altar together. And then we came to Jesus' table um, to remember that, that the very focused lens through which we see that kindness is Christ. And that if we wonder whether these blessings are part of the character of God, we look at how God is revealed in Jesus and we say, yeah, I think they are. I think the good things we experience we have reason to believe this is what God is like. And so that we came to Jesus' table. This was altar building. And I wonder if you need some altar building in your life. Maybe you need a few friends to do it with. Your friends might make fun of you. Deal with it, right? I remember one year we had a Friendsgiving at my house. And I insisted on um, going around the table and talking about what we were grateful for. And like friends were like, come on, Jay. Like, you don't have to be a pastor right now, Jay. Like that kind of stuff. And I don't care. Do it or don't eat my food right? Which is why I host, you know what I mean? Like a little leverage. And no matter how much friends make fun, like we don't even get a third of the way around the table before we are just a mess, right? Like very moved and opened up because we have to build altars sometimes because it's hard out there, right? Uh, One more question that I want to ask about this, and it's, it's kind of obvious except that we live our daily lives not always recognizing it, which is what is the blessing for? What's the blessing for? Like, what purpose? What end? What, where's the blessing supposed to go? And let's just like read this to ourselves again. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And it's, I mean, it's kind of like direct and straightforward. It's not like some like, rocket science, but let's say it out out loud as we look at this text. What's the blessing for it? To give it away, right? To do something beautiful and creative so that it expands in the world, right? So that it opens up to other people in the world. This like begs the question, like what do you have right now? What what blessing is in your hands? What do you have right now? And, And what beautiful thing could you do with it? Jesus tells a story that I think reminds us that blessings can Well, blessings can rot, and they can make something rot in us if we don't know what to do with them. 
right? Jesus tells a story about a man who has farms or fields. And in one particular year, he has a huge harvest. Everything lines up, like the seed germinates just right, and the rain falls exactly right, and you get just enough heat and sunshine and cool nights, and you just have this massive haul from your fields. And so he says to himself, like, what will I do with what I have? Right? Like, like, I have this incredible harvest. What will I do with it? And the best thing he can think of is to build bigger barns for himself to store it. And Jesus says that that night, he discovers that his life will be taken from him that very night. Like, you fool. Like, as if to say, like, couldn't you think of anything else to do with all of that blessing? Like, this good thing broke into your life, and the best you could come up with is to stockpile it. And yeah, there's sort of a judgmental word in that, but I also hear like a tragic word from Jesus. Like, I'm so sad that the best this guy could come up with is to stockpile this stuff. Like, what do you have and what beautiful thing could you do with it? Especially because blessings will rot and they will rot you. Uh, for me, an experience that comes to mind with this is, um, so I've, I've never been like, let's say Dave Ramsey would not love me. <laughs> if you don't know who that is, he's like a personal finance guru. I mean, like, I remember telling a friend once, my problem with budgets is they get in the way with feelings. <laughs> you know, like, I, I like to go where my heart takes me. You know what I mean? Um, and, and this has been a part of my life, like, for real. Now, just so nobody freaks out, I don't handle South Bend City Church finances, okay? <laughs> our board does, Amanda, our director of administration does, our accountants handle it. So relax about that, okay? Um, but yeah, this, is, this has been a part of my life. And I remember an earlier season in my life where I was just trying to get a grip on it. It was just really annoying to me. I was, I was frustrated with myself. It wasn't that I wasn't making a good living. Like I had a salary that gave me what I needed. If I put everything down on paper, I was fine. But I kept like not being able to steward all that blessing. It's like it literally like money's coming in every month, but it, it just like crumbles on you, right? Like you, you're given what you need, but then at the end of the month, not only do you feel like you don't have what you need, but you weren't able to give it away the way that you wanted to. And I was really frustrated by that. And I would try to get my act together and I would get my budget down and I would like try to put the pieces together and re-up my effort and plan little meetings with myself to take care of my finances each week. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> maybe you don't have to do that, but this is the way I was working on it at the time. Um, but one thing that I realized was out of order and, and it's kind of foolish that it took me so long to realize it because I've been really taught really well taught my, my whole life. Like, I, but I was failing to act on a principle that was plain as day and right in front of me the whole time. But um, it's not that I didn't have the smarts. Like I can do numbers in my head. I'm kind of, a, I like math a little bit. It's not that I didn't have enough money coming in. It's not that I didn't know how to work a spreadsheet. None of those things, right? But, but I was lacking like the, the energy, the, that very sort of like hard to get your hand on thing that moves you toward health and wholeness in some area of your life, right? Because we are more than capacity. You're more than your ability, right? We are these strange energies in our soul that they either move us toward destruction or health. They move us toward holiness or something else, right? Like, and I, I, like, I just couldn't find that inside me, to be honest, you know? And then it just it struck me that, um, that money, like it's not a lot of fun to mess around with except for when you get to bless someone with it, right? And so for a lot of you in the room, this is like so rudimentary that I'm wasting your time talking about it, I know, but for me, this is how this broke in, like that if I actually began uh, with the dollars, I, the blessings I was given, if, if the first thing I asked is, is what beautiful thing could I do with this, right? And so I got my tithing act in order, which um, 
I'm not here to like harp on tithing, but I'm here to say a lot of us who have what we need, like, like that ought to be a pretty good like starting point, just giving to the world, giving to the church, whatever. Um, and then I also thought of a couple organizations I really believe in. You know, like, like the Syrian refugee thing, like just heartbroken by it. I mean, just ripped apart by it, right? You know, and I'm angry about the politics and all kinds of other stuff. But I hadn't given a freaking penny, you know? And like, and I, you know, we partnered with World Vision as a church. I had a relationship with them. I love them, believe in them, and have seen their work firsthand. But I finally like just said, maybe I could help them a little bit. Like, gee, you know, like, maybe send a little money that way. And another organization that I really believe in that does some peacemaking work and, and um, I'm not saying overnight things changed, but I'll, I will tell you this. Once I started beginning with, like, what beautiful thing could I do with what I have? It, that energy I was looking for, that, that inner movement, that, that hard-to-get-your-hands-on thing that carries us toward healthiness or unhealthiness and holiness or sin, or, like, that started shifting on me because your blessings will rot and something in you will rot if you don't ask yourself, like, what do I have and what beautiful thing could I do with it? And that question is, like, is part of the engine that's driving this whole story, this whole story. Like, what do you have and what beautiful thing could you do with it? This is why lately when I think about our church and I see that we have been given so much, um, I lose a lot of sleep on, like, are, are we doing what we could do with that? Because we've been given so much. I've been over in Studebaker every day in our factory space. My jeans have Studebaker dust on them. I don't know what that is. It's probably asbestos laden. And No, I'm just kidding. We get, that's all gone. Don't worry. That's all gone. Um, but I've been, over, I've been over there every day, and I, I'm in love with that space. I mean, it's quirky. It's a factory, but I think it's so beautiful, you guys. And I walk in, and I think about, you know, we're, we're hang, this week, right now, like the money that you gave is getting spent. We're hanging sound and building a stage and we're putting foam flooring in the kids' rooms so they don't crash their skulls on concrete floors and we're doing all of that um, thanks to the, the things we've been given and as we're doing that, I just keep feeling this really holy burden which is like, we've been given so much, what beautiful things could we do with this? You know, not, like not to build South and City Church but like to build our city, to build our neighbors, to build one another, um, like what beautiful thing could we do? Um, this is why, by the way, like, I'm really excited that, like, we're finally at the point where if you want to, you can get your hands on some of it. Like, tomorrow, if you want to show up, we got those acoustic panels. If I can do it, you can do it. You just, like, spray some, like, industrial glue. I don't know, want to know what it's made of. And then you, like, put this fabric on top, and then s people who know what they're doing are hanging it. Um, we have, like, 150 uh, light pendants, by the way, for the Edison bulbs, you know, the glorious Edison bulbs that I, I'm really excited about. But they have really annoying gold, like silver stickers on them that are probably there because the electricians want them there. But we're taking them off because we already know what the load is on the socket, right? And we don't want it hanging down. So that's good. if you want to like sit on the floor of the Studebaker and like with every sticker you peel off, just say a prayer for that space. God, you've given us so much. Help us to do beautiful things with it, you know? Um, we'd love to have you do that. So keep an eye on social media. Somebody... Amanda's going to figure out how to make sure you know what's going on so you can be there if you want to do that. But we've been given a lot. I'm sure you've been given a lot. You've been given, um, you've been given some kind of resource. You've been given um, a talent for something that somebody else doesn't have. You, you've been given empathy. You, 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 there's something about you that you can sit down for a cup of coffee with somebody else and somehow something is healed in them an hour later just because you saw them. 
right? You've been given some wounds from your past that you've healed from, and those scars are now blessings that you can steward, stories that you can tell, and ways that you can move toward other people, right? You've been given business savvy. I mean, you just, you know how to make things work in the world, and there's somebody else in your life that doesn't, <laughs> and there's something they're trying to make work in the world, and they're just aching for that blessing that could come through you. We could go on and on. You're, you have a backyard that's like a nature sanctuary. I don't know. And honestly, it's a little too quiet and a little too empty back there. And your neighbors don't have a space like that. We could go on and on. Like, what do you have? What do you have? And what beautiful thing could you do with it? I think if we move toward that, we'll discover like this engine that's driving the story. We might find a little bit of it driving us. And, um, and then we could spend another hour just talking about this idea when it shows up in Jesus. You know, Philippians says um, he had the glory of heaven, right? He, but he gave it all away, right? Um, again and again, we see Jesus giving away, giving away, giving away, that gifts could come to all of us. So um, I'm gonna pray, and maybe we could just sit with that question for a minute, and then Dan's gonna come back up and lead us... Um, to respond just a little bit for a moment. But if you wouldn't mind, let's bow our heads. Uh, loving God, you've called us to wild, unexpected, beautiful, dangerous places. You've called us to be brave and obedient some of us may, may have stepped into a, a wild and unexpected place like with great faith. Some of us, we might feel like we've been dragged there by some circumstances that broke in, that, that tore us away from where we knew we were home. Some of us may not um, be experiencing much of that right now, but maybe that's something that you're putting on our heart to look for how you might be calling us outward forward. And uh, I know I'm, I'm convinced that there, is, there are blessings out there waiting for us. Not that we could hoard them, collect them, not that we would build bigger barns, but in fact that we could do something beautiful with them, that we could find a way to give them to the world. So that's our prayer for, for these individual lives that we lead. It's our prayer for our church, that we would just keep asking, what beautiful thing are you calling us to do? How are you calling us to give this away? And uh, we're grateful. We love you. We always pray through the name of Christ. Amen.